So last week we learnt about Jesus, the serving and saving shepherds. And Rob left us with a compelling question. Are you listening to Jesus? Are you listening to Jesus? And so now it's appropriate that over the next five weeks, we're starting a new series focusing on some of the key sayings of Jesus. To be baptized, to pray, to be part of the church, to share bread and wine together, to follow Jesus and not be afraid. And this morning, we're starting this series with the very first words of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. Any author or journalist, public speaker or company executive will tell you that first words are really important. If you're writing a book or an article, giving a talk or presentation, your opening sentence is key. So of all the sayings of Jesus, the words we're going to look at this morning are super important. Now hear me clearly, I'm not saying that Jesus' other words are not important. They are. But these are the very first words of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. Mark chapter 1, reading from verse 14. After, Jim, sorry, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Therefore, repent and believe the good news. Now, our points are slightly different to what will appear on the slide later, so just ignore those. And these words uh, this morning are for all of us. For all of us that are uh, not Christians, for those of us who've recently become Christians, and for those of us that have been Christians for many years, we all need to listen to what Jesus has to say to us. So firstly, Jesus says, the time has come. Verse 15 Jesus says, the time has come. Or perhaps you could read it as, in me, the time is fulfilled. Now, I find it so easy to read past these words and not give them any thought. But they contain huge amount of weight and significance. And the reason I and perhaps the reason we find them easy to read over is because we just don't know our Old Testaments well enough. But as Jesus said these words, they would have pricked the ear of the Jewish listeners. For they were waiting patiently for the Messiah, for God's chosen forever king. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says to King David, the king of God's people, When you die, I will raise up for you one of your offspring and I will establish his throne and his kingdom forever. David did die and his offspring died. And the nation of Israel, God's people were kingless 
for they had been captured by the Babylonians and the Assyrians, and now the Romans. God's promise really didn't look as though it was going to happen. But then Jesus turns up, and he says, In me, the time is fulfilled. In me, the time is fulfilled. I am the offspring of King David. I am the rightful king. And God the Father has established my throne and my kingdom forever. In Daniel chapter 7, God gives Daniel a vision in which he sees the Son of Man given an everlasting kingdom that all people, all nations, all languages will bow down and serve. And now Jesus has turned up and says, In me the time is fulfilled. I am the Son of Man. I am the one given an everlasting kingdom. I am the one in whom all people, all nations, all languages will bow down to and serve. Do you see now the weight and significance of these verses? And there are loads of other passages that we could also turn to that state the same thing. Jesus says he is the fulfillment of all of history. The time has come. In me the time is fulfilled. I am the one that the whole of the Old Testament points towards. Jesus says, the time has come. And secondly, Jesus says, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the kingdom of God has come near. Jesus says, in me the kingdom of God has come near. And the kingdom of God has come near because the king is here. Jesus, God's chosen king is here. Jesus, the offspring of David. Jesus, the one given an everlasting throne and kingdom Jesus, the one to whom all people, nations, and languages will bow down to and serve. Jesus, God's chosen king, is here. That is why the kingdom of God is near. And Mark makes the same point in his gospel accounts when he states in his opening words, and we've already talked about how important opening words are. Mark 1, verse 1 the beginning of the gospel, or good news, about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark is saying the good news, in fact, the very best news that anyone can ever hear, is about a person, Jesus, who is God's Son and God's chosen forever King. It's a little wonder, then, that Christians keep talking about this person, Jesus, Jesus is God's, Jesus, God's chosen king, is here. And when Jesus says, I am the king, he isn't using the term like Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll. Jesus isn't just claiming kingship over a specific creation of music, or kingship over a specific people group, or a specific place. Or a specific time period. Nay, when Jesus says, I am the king, he is claiming kingship 
over all of creation. He is claiming kingship over all people, and not just Christians, all people. He is claiming kingship over all places, and he is claiming kingship over all of time, past, present, and future. Now Elvis backs up his claim as the king of rock and roll by producing good-sounding music. But Jesus far more impressively backs up his claim as the king of everything by obeying God the Father perfectly and fulfilling all Old Testament prophecy. He backs up his claim through his teaching with authority. He backs up his claim by displaying his miraculous power over demons, disease, and death. And the key piece of evidence, he backs up his claim by dying. And then three days later, rising from death to life. Elvis's kingship as the king of rock and roll, well, that's disputable. But Jesus' kingship, that's not disputable. Just sadly is often dismissed. If you want to speak um, to anyone further on the evidence for Jesus' identity, then please do chat to me, or perhaps David or Lewis, afterwards. Uh, and we've even got a Christianity Explore course coming up um, later in April, if you want to join that and look at the claims of Jesus in more detail. Verse 15, Jesus says, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Therefore, point three, repent and believe the good news. Now to a Jewish listener, as we've already mentioned, Jesus' first two statements would have sparked their excitement. But repent and believe... Well, what's that about? You see, they'd misunderstood and thought Jesus was coming to defeat the Romans and set them free from oppression and slavery. But repent and believe? There's no freedom found in that, surely. Well, the irony is, is that repentance is the only way to find true freedom. Repentance is the only way to know true freedom. Please could you turn forward a few pages to Luke chapter 15, uh, verse 11. And we're going to trace this parable of Jesus's to help us understand what repentance means and what it looks like. Luke chapter 15, reading from verse 11. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. In other words, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me now the inheritance that is owed to me. Dad, I wish you were dead. That's like a bullet to the heart. And yet, graciously, the father gives the son what he doesn't deserve. So the father divided his property between his sons. 
And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. Firstly, Dad, I wish you were dead. And now, through his actions, the younger son is saying, Dad, your life's work is meaningless. These fields and livestock and servants and buildings that you've worked hard for, that I've now inherited, they mean nothing to me. I'm just going to auction them all off. I don't want your life's work. What a waste of time. It means nothing to me. You mean nothing to me. I just want cash. What the younger son has done is outrageous. Talk about rubbing salt in the wound. And verse 13, so the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Dad, I wish you were dead. Dad, your life's work is, means nothing to me. And now I'm intentionally going to travel away as far as I can. And then recklessly, foolishly, and openly waste this newfound wealth on wild living. The younger son didn't think that his dad had it right, and he thought that he knew the best way to live his life. But verse 14, after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. The money had run out, The friends had left him, and the younger son became owned by a Gentile pig farmer. To any Jew, even the idea of this would have been repulsive. To link yourself with pagans and to farm unclean animals? The younger son couldn't have sunk any lower. And verse 14, after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. Initially, the younger son was confronted by his circumstances. He was in need. And for the younger son, it was a God-ordained famine that was the start, the starting point of his journey to his father. God was at work at the young, in the younger son, even before he journeyed back to his father. And how often I, we, are testament to that truth. As we look back and see how God has been at work in our lives, controlling every circumstance and leading us to him. But initially, verse 15, the youngest son, most probably out of guilt, embarrassment and pride, tries to fix the situation himself. And he hires himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. But the younger son soon realizes that his plan has not fixed the problem. He's still in need. Because verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And finally, verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said... How many of my father's hired servants have spare food to spare? And here I am starving to death. 
when he came to his senses, when he realized his error, when he was overcome with his guilt, what have I done? I thought I knew best. I went to find freedom and satisfaction and only found death. In Psalm 32, the psalm we looked at right at the beginning of the service, David tries to cover up his wrongdoing and keep silence. And he describes, he describes that it felt like his bones were being wasted away through his groaning all day long and that his strength was dried up by the heat of summer. Friends, if we try to find freedom and satisfaction without God, if we try to cover up our wrongdoing and keep silent, if we try to feed ourselves and fix our problems in our own strength, well, we'll only know the burden of guilt and the feeling of starving to death. That is not freedom. So what do we do with our guilt? What do we do with our burdens? Well, here are six common ways I or we placate our guilt. Number one, we blame shift. I'm not to blame for my wrong, the famine, the job loss, the tiredness, the hunger. Well, that's to blame. Number two, we redefine wrong. It was okay to do what I did because I was just satisfying my feelings. Everyone else was doing it. Therefore, it's okay. Live and let live. Number three, we medicate it. Alcohol, excessive shopping sprees, binge watching or reading gossip that makes us feel good about ourselves, pointing out flaws in others and putting them down. At least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Number four, we achieve. We look at the good achievements that we've made, that we have done in our own strength, the career success, the happy family. Aren't I good? Number five, we give to charity. I may have done some wrong, but I've, I've done more right. So in the balance things, I'm, I'm good. Perhaps number six, penitence. We beat ourselves up. We show sorrow and regret for having done wrong. What do we do with our guilt? Well, gloriously, there is another option. One that covers our wrong and deals with our guilt. And that is to repent. Verse 18. The younger son says to himself, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hard servants. So he got up and went to his father. The younger son repents. He recognizes that he's done wrong, that he's a sinner. He recognizes who he has sinned against, God and his father. He recognizes that he isn't worthy to be his father's son. And his repentance isn't just a feeling, but an action. He turns from his old way of living and goes to his father. That's repentance. 
And the thing is, this parable describes exactly how we have all treated God. We're all like the younger son. We've all taken the crown off God's head where it rightly should be and we've placed it on our own heads. We all think that we know best. As we've been looking at the Ten Commandments recently in the kids' slot, have you not felt convicted by your sin? I certainly have. We are all like the younger son. And like the younger son, we need to repent. We need to recognize that we've done wrong, that we're sinners. We need to recognize who we have sinned against, God, our Father. We need to recognize that we are not worthy to be part of God's family. And our repentance cannot just be a feeling, but must be an action. We must turn from our old way of living and turn to God. That's repentance. But there are two sons in this parable. And the warning of the older son is don't think that you are good enough. Verse 28, so the elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. And never disobeyed your orders. And verse 31, the father says, My son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Here's the warning. Don't boast and trust in all that you have done. And take your relationship with God for granted. For in doing so, you will have returned your relationship with God into a pharisaical religion. The older son is no better than the younger son. He too needs to repent. And if you've repented, don't forget the natural state of your heart, for by nature we are all like the younger son and so need to repent daily. This is the mark of a Christian. Someone who has repented in the past and someone who daily keeps on repenting for what they continue to do. Repentance is the right response because of the wrong that we have done and continue to do. And daily, repentance also guards us from being like that older son, from being self-righteous. And it reminds us that we need a saviour. So how is our repentance received? Verse 20. And personally, I think that these verses are some of the most amazing verses in the whole of the Bible. While the younger son was still a long way off, his father saw him. The father was watching and patiently waiting. And the father, saw son, the father saw the younger son and was filled with right anger. For that's what the son deserves, isn't it? Nay. The father saw the younger son and was filled with compassion for him. 
And he ran to his son. And in Jewish custom, that would have been disgraceful. But the father chooses to disgrace himself and run to his son and throws his arms round him and kisses him. Oh, how the tears would have flowed. And verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father, but the father cuts him short, but he has forgiven him. And the father says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. You see, the son uncovers himself, exposing his wrong. And the father, filled with compassion, covers him with the best robe and puts a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. The son uncovers and the father covers. In verse 23, he brings the fattened calf and kills it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate forgiveness, restoration, celebration. And so it is with all those who repent of their sin and turn to God. God the Father is watching and patiently waiting. And when he sees us at a distance coming to him, he runs with outstretched arms and welcomes us into his family. And God has already disgraced himself. God the Father sent his son Jesus, his chosen forever king, to come into the world, to die in our place, paying the penalty for our sin that we deserve, so that our sins can be forgiven. And as we are welcomed into God's family, we are robed in Jesus' royal robes, and welcomed to a feast, a celebration, For we were dead, but now we are alive. We were lost, but now we are found. No wonder David can say in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is found no deceit. And verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. What glorious news. Jesus calls us to repent and believe the good news that Jesus the King has come for you. Jesus says the time has come. He is the fulfillment of all history. Jesus says the kingdom of God has come near. For he is the king and God the Father has established his kingdom. And Jesus calls us daily to repent and believe the good news. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you'd help us to recognize who Jesus is, that he is the fulfillment of all history, the one whose throne and kingdom are established forever. And we pray that you'd help us to respond to him rightly, perhaps for the first time this morning.
Would we repent? And for those of us that have repented once, would we continue to repent daily? For we are individuals who keep turning away from you, and we need to keep turning back to you, our Father. We are sorry. But we praise you, Father, for the glorious good news of the Lord Jesus, that in him we can know forgiveness of sins, we can know our sin covered, we can know that we are a part of your family, that our future is secure and certain. We praise you, Father, for all that you have done for us, for it is glorious. Fill us with joy, Lord. For your glory. Amen.